0: Hello, Christ community. Greetings to, uh, our 15th Street Campus, our West Campus, our traditions, venue. So glad all of you are here. Believe it or not, we actually have been planning for this day for about nine months. Um, this is a very significant weekend, a very significant season in the life of our church. So let me share a little bit of the backstory as to why I believe this teaching series that we're starting is of such importance. A couple of summers ago, I was on a bike ride on the Pooter Trail, um, and I had biked to my favorite spot, which is this beach bench that looks, I wish it was a beach, but no, um, a bench that looks out towards the mountains and I was doing just kind of this regular sort of, you know, Bible reading thing. And I came to the story, uh, the story in the Old Testament, the story of King Saul. And his his story is really a tragic one. It's heartbreaking, right? As a young man, Saul was chosen by God to be king of Israel. He was Israel's first king. And he seemed to have all the right stuff for that role. He was tall. He was he had a commanding presence. He had the, the calling of God on his life. The, the nation was longing for a king. So everything seemed to be set up for Saul's success. But unfortunately, he never achieved any of that, right? From the, from the beginning of his reign as king, things just kind of began to fall apart. He never reached his potential. He seemed to make one bad decision after another. And so over the course of his entire life, he became a very angry, um, bitter, obsessive, destructive person. A whole story against tragic His his life got derailed and he never could really get it back on track. So, when you look at that story, when you look at a story like this, the obvious question, the most pressing question for us is what happened? What happened? How did Saul's life? which initially had all this amazing potential and all this promise, how did it end up on this downward spiral of of pain and evil and brokenness? Now, what I had understood, maybe you're similar if you're familiar with the story, what I had understood up to that moment on the Pooter Trail was that Saul's life got derailed by disobedience, that that was his problem. His problem was disobedience. It was as simple as that. He just chose to make really bad decisions, and those decisions had consequences, and that's why his life got so messed up. End of story. Well, so as I'm reading this story on that that day, I'm reading, and it happened to be in 1 Samuel 15, where Saul once again made this bonehead decision, and God says something to Saul that totally changed my understanding of Saul's entire life. I had never seen this before. I had never seen this before. It was like God opened my eyes to finally see what Saul's real problem was. And in that realization, I was struck by the fact that in a very real sense, Saul's struggle is every one of our struggle. His struggle is every one of our struggle. It's the same reason that our lives often get derailed. It's the same reason why sometimes we we don't reach our full potential. It's the reason why our good intentions don't seem to result in any real change. It's the reason we struggle to have healthy relationships. Okay, so what what is it that God said to Saul that day? Well, we're going to unpack this in way more detail over the next few weeks but I want to really share it here at the start of this series so that we all know kind of where we're headed. So after Saul chose once again to disobey God, this is what God says to him. Verse 17. Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And it was this phrase, though you are little in your own eyes that jumped out to me that day. You see, Saul's fundamental problem was not a sin problem. All of his sinful and disobedient decisions, all of those things were rooted in a much deeper issue, and that issue was shame. It was shame. Saul viewed himself as little in his own eyes. He didn't like himself. He didn't feel adequate. He didn't believe that he had what it takes, right? That's shame. That's shame. Shame is this often deeply hidden feeling that each of us has. It's this this feeling inside us that tells us that there's something wrong with us. There's something defective about us. There is something unlovable about me. And this shame often gets reinforced. I mean, Raylene and I were, last weekend we weren't here because we were traveling and we were at DIA um, and trying to get on the, you know, the train to DIA to get to another gate. It was crowded. We were trying to get on the train and, and, you know, the doors try to close. And the guy in the intercom says, you are causing this train to be delayed. Shame on you. You know, shame on you. You're delaying. That's what it felt like. At least he didn't say that. But, you know, it felt like just, I'm a bad person. I'm, I'm causing every person in this airport's, you know, flights to be delayed or travel plans to be messed up or whatever. Now, here's the deal about shame. It's really hard to see because it is often buried deep within. But it impacts our lives in significant ways, as we're going to see in the next few weeks. Ultimately, it was shame that destroyed Saul's life. It was shame that destroyed Saul's life. When you go back, and we're going to be looking at this next couple of weeks, but when you go back and look at Saul's life, Saul's entire life through this lens of shame, in First Samuel 15, 17, when you see the whole, his life through this lens, everything becomes clear. Every bad decision, every angry outburst, every fearful thing Saul does is the result of this poisonous feeling of shame that he carried for decades For decades. And this is why this series is so important for all of us. When shame is at work in us, it will have the same poisonous impact in our lives, it will destroy our relationships. It will fill us with and fuel our self-hatred and our anger. It will, it will feed our depression and our addictions. Shame will keep us stuck in unhealthy patterns of behavior. It's, it's, you know, it's why sometimes we really want to change, right? But we can't seem to be able to. I mean, at various times in Saul's story, he repented. He repented. He wanted to change, but it never happened because he never got to the root problem. So let me just say right up front here, all of us have shame. All of us here have shame. Now, why do I say that? Because the Bible says that. The Bible says this. This whole shame thing, it's not just some psychological thing, you know, kind of fad right now. The whole shame thing started all the way back in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, chapter 3. The first time Adam and Eve sinned against God. Look at the impact. First time they sinned, look at the impact. Verse 7 of chapter 3. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. This is what shame does. It causes us to hide for fear of being exposed. Shame whispers or it shouts to our soul, you're not acceptable, you're a failure, there's something wrong with you. You need to hide who you really are. Shame is a direct consequence of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God, which means that none of us are exempt from feelings of shame. And that shame is impacting our lives in some way. And so in this series, we're going to be unpacking this thing called shame and talking about how we can walk in freedom from shame. Now, here's my challenge for all of us. For all of you here, here's a direct challenge. Whether whether or not you think shame is an issue in your life, whether or not you think it's an issue in your life, fully engage in this series the next seven weeks. Fully engage in this series. Talk about it in your e-groups. Go there with the Lord, even if it's painful, even if it's hard. It's worth it. And here's why it's worth it. It's because God has a vision and a plan for your life to live in freedom from shame. And that vision is what I call wholeheartedness. Wholeheartedness. The heart is at the core of our being. It houses our personality, our passions, our dreams, our desires, our loves. It's what directs our decisions. Our heart is what directs our decisions. The heart is central to who you are and it is central to what you do. And that's why the Bible talks so much about the heart. Jesus once said in Luke 6, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. You see, a shame-filled heart produces lots of unhealthy things, negative thoughts and destructive behaviors, but a good heart, a whole heart, produces life and good things. So what I want us to do, and the rest of this particular message, I want us to focus on this idea of- of wholeheartedness, having a whole heart. I want us to see a clear picture of what wholeheartedness looks like, of what God ultimately desires for you and me. And this vision, it's actually given to us in the Bible. This vision is given to us in the book of Genesis chapters one and two, where we see God's original design for us as humans. In Genesis one and two, we get this beautiful picture of what Life looks like without shame. Of what life actually looks like without shame. In other words, we get a vision for how God ultimately wants us to live and honestly how we want to live. How we want to live. I mean, as we look at these chapters, I believe that every one of us in our hearts, our hearts are going to be stirred with longing. We want to be whole, we want this vision. In our lives, we want to be free from the damage and the infection of shame. And God wants that for us as well. This is not a pipe dream, folks. This is the hope we have in the gospel. God is restoring all things, He is restoring our hearts so that the trajectory of our lives is going back to Genesis 1 and 2, back to this place where our hearts are actually whole. That's where God's plan is moving. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned, God was implementing a plan, a plan to restore what was damaged by sin. And part of that restoration process is to deal with our shame is to deal with our shame. So let's explore and discover together what wholeheartedness looks like. What does it look like when shame is no longer having its way in us? That's the vision we want to have here. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we see four amazing characteristics of wholehearted living. First is a valued identity, a valued identity. Look with me at Genesis 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. This is after God created all the living things around us, right? All the trees and the plants and the birds and the animals and the dinosaurs and all of that, right? After he had created all of that, we then read this. So God created human beings in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them. Now think about what this is saying. God didn't use this kind of image bearer language when talking about creating animals or trees or the stars or the moon, none of that. These things are awesome. Those other things are awesome. And they reveal God's creativity and his power, but they don't reflect his image. They don't reflect his image. Only you and I reflect the image of God. According to this verse, every person, every man and woman and child is an image bearer of God. And that includes you and me. We are unique. We, we all uniquely reflect God's image. So here, here's what this means, practically speaking. You have incredible value and worth because you are created in God's image. You have incredible value and worth because you're created in God's image. This point has been so significant to me personally in my own journey. I'm kind of a scientifically minded person and, and I can remember in college um, professors talking about the theory of evolution and, and I just wrestled, I wrestled with this, the ultimate conclusion of that, the ultimate conclusion, which is that I'm just the result of millions of years of mutations See, everything within me saw evidence to the contrary. We we are not functional beings. I am not just a functional being. We have the ability to love, We, we have this innate passion for justice. We have this ability to create and art and music. We have the capacity to reflect and to think and to invent things. We have this capacity to demonstrate compassion. All of these things are not simply functional. They are God-like. They're God-like. I mean, I'm constantly amazed at, at the complexity of just our human bodies. Our ability to, to see is a work of genius. Millions, every one of you has millions of optic nerves that communicate with your brain. And our brain is beyond description. I mean, a few days ago, a simple illustration, a few days ago, someone mentioned to me a song that I had not thought about or heard or sung for 40 years. And yet immediately I could sing the entire song, lyrics and all. How does our brain do that? How does our brain do that? 40 years immediately, I was able to access that. When I cut my finger, I'm amazed at my body's ability to stop the bleeding. The the, the clotting system, if you've ever studied this, it is a very complex system where every step has to happen. If our blood didn't do these steps, we would die. We would die. Humanity would not survive. I mean, do you ever think about, I think about these things sometimes, do you ever think about how your heart is beating and it's not plugged into any outlet? My phone can't even go eight hours without being plugged in. I know I need a new phone, but still, uh, eight hours without a charge on my phone. Your heart has been beating for decades and it's not plugged in to any outlet. Do you ever, sometimes I do this, like, you know, go to the doctor or whatever. Do you ever look at those diagrams? on the wall of your doctor's office or your dermatologist or your eye doctor, your chiropractor or whatever, that show all these muscles and tendons and skin and nerves and organs all working together. Every system in our body is a work of genius. And to think that all of these systems are working together constantly, respiratory, circulatory, digestive, nervous system, skeletal system, all of that. I mean, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The new iPhone has nothing on our, our, the complexity of our bodies. Seriously, nothing compared to the complexity of our bodies. See, for me, these things scream of our design. They scream of our design and our value as image bearers of God. And it's like from the very first page of Scripture, God was like, I want to make sure you understand this. You are created. You bear my image. And because of that, you have unique value and worth to the God who created you. You matter. And folks, here's the deal. Shame wants us to believe that we have no value, that we have no worth, right? That, that, that we have to hide our true selves. That's what shame does. But that is not God's design or his plan for us. See, part of God's restorative work through the gospel, through, through Christ is to restore our identity. That's part of his plan is to restore our identity. It's to help us walk in this truth that we are valuable and we are loved by God. I mean, Genesis 1, it says that after creating Adam and Eve, he, God blessed them. That is his heart. See, that is his heart. It is to. It is for us to walk in his blessing, to experience the fullness of life in relationship with him. The Garden of Eden before Genesis 3, it was this beautiful picture of a God who loves us and, and speaks to us and longs for this close intimate relationship with us and so this is why in the new testament this issue of identity becomes so critically important in christ in jesus we are god's beloved sons and daughters and when we live in the fullness of that truth it changes everything It changes everything. Shame wants us to lose sight of our identity. God's plan for us is to live out of this valued identity. It's to live out of that, this blessed relationship with God. Second characteristic, a vision here for wholehearted living as God originally designed is genuine freedom. Genuine freedom. Look at Genesis 2, verse verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, this is before the fall, before sin entered the picture. But notice, in this perfect environment, there are commands. There are commands. See, God commands Adam and Eve to not, commands Adam initially, to not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then that commandment gets Um, communicated to Eve as well. Both Adam and Eve know this command from God, but I want us to notice the first few words of the verse we just read. God says to Adam, you are free to eat from any tree except this one. You are free. See, God is giving Adam and Eve a choice. Now someone... Hundreds of people have asked this question, thousands over the centuries, right? Well, why did God give them a choice if he knew they were going to disobey and everything was going to mess up? Why did he do that? Ultimately, and I'm not a philosopher, but here's, I think this is at the key, the key to answering that question. Ultimately, this reflects the nature of love, right? Had God created a bunch of robots that he programmed to do exactly what he wanted them to do, had he done that, the one thing they would not be able to do is to freely choose to love. They would not have been able to freely choose to love him. And love is what God is most interested in. So he gave Adam and Eve the freedom to choose him, which means they also had the freedom to not choose him. It was all about love. Now, here's what I want us to notice. For a season of time, we don't know how long, but there was a season of time, there was a season of time where Adam and Eve freely chose to obey God. Sin hadn't entered the picture yet. They were freely choosing to obey God. They trusted God's goodness and his purposes, and so they naturally did what he wanted. They wanted to obey him. See, that's the nature of true freedom. True freedom is not the ability to do whatever we want. That's not freedom. (laughs) We all know how quickly that gets us into trouble. True freedom comes from being so in love with God that we want what he wants. We choose what he wants for us because we know it's best for us. We love him. We know it's best for us. We freely choose that. See, this is a picture of what wholeheartedness looks like. This is a picture of what God desires for us, that we genuinely want what he wants. So just speaking personally here, from my own personal experience, one of the biggest indicators to me of how fully I'm experiencing wholeheartedness is this area of desire, when I'm not living in this vibrant, wholehearted union with God, when shame is sort of rearing its ugly head in my life, what begins to happen is that my desires get out of whack. Right? My desires get out of whack. Rather than a longing for God, I start looking for other things to satisfy me. And when I pursue those other things, guess what? I, I immediately begin to lose my sense of freedom. It was my choice but I began to lose my sense of freedom and joy. That, that freedom that I had when my, when my heart was set on God. I was like, yeah, I want to do this. And all of a sudden, I, I, I feel like I start to lose that freedom. True wholeheartedness is, is this amazing freedom where we freely choose to walk with God. <laughs> we freely choose that because we want that. We freely choose what he wants because it is ultimately what we want. It is what we ultimately want. Now, the gospel, not our willpower, not self, you know, whatever, not self-control, all that stuff. The the gospel, this restorative plan of God, that is what enables this to happen, this freedom to happen. It's not on our own. It's the gospel. See, whereas sin wants to bring us into bondage, what what God offers us in the gospel is freedom from sin's power. But again, we're very much in process. We haven't, you know... We're not in heaven yet. We're very much in process. Genuine freedom is available to us. It is. It's available to us in the gospel. And God wants to help us continue to move towards this vision. And we can all admit that life is a whole lot more enjoyable when we're freely choosing God. A whole lot more enjoyable when we're freely choosing him. A third characteristic of this wholehearted vision, this life that God wants for us, is a meaningful purpose a meaningful purpose. It is very significant to note that immediately after creating Adam and Eve in his image as described in Genesis 1 and then blessing them, this is what God says, Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. See, to both men and women, God says, I want you to oversee what happens on this planet. I want you to rule and subdue the earth. See, there's a clear purpose that is attached to this command. God didn't create us to simply roam the earth. He created us to rule the earth, to rule the earth. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, if we use Jesus as our example, which would be a good idea, We use Jesus as our example. What ruling the earth means is is bringing his kingdom. It's bringing his life, his order out of chaos. It's bringing his blessing to this earth. That's what it means. It's not a ruling, dominion, controlling. No, no, no. It's, It's bringing his life, his healing, his kingdom to this earth. See, what's clear from Genesis 1 is that God created each one of us each one of you, for a purpose. You have a God-given purpose. And part of that purpose is wrapped up in this idea of God's rule, his dominion, his kingdom being established on earth. Now, before you freak out about the the kingdom word and all this stuff, this is not talking about a political kingdom. It's not talking about a military kingdom. God's kingdom is talking about this, this, this kingdom of life and love and truth and blessing. See, it's that kingdom that Jesus unleashed when he was on the earth. That's the kingdom he unleashed. So to live in wholeheartedness is to live with a sense of your God-given purpose. It's to live with that, the sense of your purpose, to live with this sense of of call and destiny, whether you're in the business world or the medical profession or retail or education, or you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, you have a God-given purpose, Remember, he created you. You have gifts and abilities and resources to uniquely leverage for his kingdom. You do. You have these resources. In fact, in Ephesians 2.10, this amazing verse, look at this. For we are God's handiwork... Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are his handiwork. You are created to do good works, to help bring his kingdom. He has prepared in advance good things that you uniquely get to do on his behalf. You have a unique God-given purpose. But here's the deal. Shame causes us to lose sight of our ultimate purpose. It causes us to lose sight of this. Shame keeps us from fully and wholeheartedly pursuing God's purpose for our lives. I mean, when you're convinced, when you're convinced that you don't have value and you're a failure and you're a loser and you have nothing to offer, when that's what you think deep inside of you, you're going to live that way. You're going to live that way. And you're going to miss God's purpose for you. See, the truth is, because you are an image bearer of God, you have a purpose. He created you to be a kingdom ambassador for him. Okay, there's one final aspect of wholeheartedness that that I want us to see here. God's vision for us is to experience healthy relationships. Healthy relationships. So in, in Genesis 1, where God creates everything, we see this, we see this line over and over again. God saw that He had made and it was good, right? Over and over again. Everything in the world, everything in the Garden of Eden was good. It's good, 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 good. So then we get to Genesis 2, where Adam is working in the garden, and God says something absolutely amazing. This is before the fall. Everything is perfect, right? This is Genesis 2, verse 18. God says it is not good for the man to be alone. In this perfect environment, God acknowledges that there is something here in this perfect environment, there's something here that is not good. And what is not good is that Adam was alone. Yes, he had God. He had God. But even God acknowledges that that's not enough. Think about that. Even God acknowledged that that wasn't enough. God acknowledged that Adam needed relationship with others. We are built for connection. We're built for connection. This is part of our DNA as people created in God's image. It is not good for us to be disconnected relationally because God is not disconnected relationally. He lives in the Trinity, right? He is in relationship. And so we're created as image bearers. We have that same need in a good way. We are wired for connection. So to live with a whole heart means to live and enjoy healthy relationships. This this is more than just being in proximity to people and, you know, being around people. What what we're talking about here is experiencing meaningful connection with people. In fact, look again at Genesis 2, verse 25. Adam Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. There's that word. Naked and they felt no shame. See, this is not simply an episode of naked and afraid, right? What's being described here is at the heart of genuine connection. And, it, 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 and that is this incredible joy, the incredible joy of knowing and being known. Knowing and being known, no masks, no hiding, no pretending. We are free to be ourselves and to be accepted and loved in that place, just as we are. Free to be loved in that place. Now, we all long for that, right? We we're built for it, we long for this. So, what keeps us from experiencing this? Everyone should know the answer by now it's shame right? Shame, shame keeps us hidden. It keeps us from being known by others. It keeps us from being vulnerable. I mean, if deep in my heart, I believe that I am unacceptable, that I'm defective, that I am unworthy of love. If deep in my heart, even if I'm consciously not saying that, if deep in my heart, that's what I believe, it will significantly impact my relationships, significantly impact our relationships. I will either withdraw from people when they get too close, convinced that if they get to know me, they're not going to like me. So I'll just kind of withdraw from people. Or I will diligently work to keep wearing my mask, to keep maintaining my perfect Facebook image, you know, only the pictures and events that make me look good. See, either way, we don't experience real relationships. We don't experience genuine love because we don't let anyone get close enough to know us. But again, that's not God's vision. That's not God's vision for us. God's vision for us is healthy relationships where we can know and be known, where we can love and be loved just the way we are. And the gospel of Jesus, the gospel Enables this reality to happen. If I know deep in my heart that I am loved by God no matter what, it frees me to risk letting my guard down and letting people know me. I mean, I'm so thrilled that right now we have new e-groups forming. Many e-groups are going through this material. It's just an opportunity for us to grow in this. We're practicing what we're learning about. I mean, we all long for deeper connections with other people. And so those things provide that. There are other ways as well, but it's this, it's this, this journey towards healthy relationships. Okay, so here's what I want, I want us to do for just a moment. Um, I want us to, to imagine together. Um, we're going to practice one of the image-bearer qualities we have. It's our imagination. God has given us this. This is an image-bearer quality. So what I want you to do is take a moment. I want you to imagine with me. We've been talking about this vision for wholeheartedness. It's like we're, I'm trying to get us to just stand on this, this mountain and look and see this vision. So we've been talking about this vision for what God wants for us. So, now I want us to just kind of let the Lord make this personal. So, we'll take a moment. In fact, I'd encourage you just to close your eyes if you're comfortable doing that. Just close your eyes and imagine. I want to just walk you through this, this exercise. Imagine, I'm going to mention a few things here. So, first of all, imagine what your life would look like today. Or this coming week at work or school or in your home. Imagine what your life would look like if you lived in this confident assurance that you are the beloved of God. That you are valued and loved by him no matter what. Can you imagine what, can you begin to envision what kind of impact that would have upon you personally if you knew you were the beloved of God? Okay, now I want you to imagine, hang with me here, just imagine what your life would be like today. Right now, or this coming week, if you had this passionate love for Jesus that stirred in you a desire to follow him and obey him no matter what, where you freely chose what he wanted for you because it's the exact same thing you want, what kind of an impact would that have on you today and this coming week? Just imagine that for a moment in your mind. Okay, let's keep, keep going here. Imagine what your life would be like this week if you lived with a sense of divine purpose at your work, in your home, your school. If you lived every day with this sense of divine calling and purpose upon your life. God's calling and purpose upon your life looking for ways that you could bring the God's kingdom into every situation you face. How would that impact your life? Imagine that. And then finally here, imagine with me what it would be like to live an entire day without worrying what other people thought of you. An entire day without having to project this image of having it all together. Can you imagine what your relationships would be like when this barrier of self-consciousness was removed and you could just love? All of these things we've been imagining and envisioning are actually God's desire for you and me. Shame keeps us from experiencing these things, but Jesus paid the price so we could more and more walk in these things. So let me pray for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. For giving us this vision of wholeheartedness. Wow, this vision of the fullness of life that you long for us to experience. And Lord, speaking for myself, I think this prayer reflects all of our hearts. We want that. (laughs) We want to walk in this more and more. And so Father, we pray together. We pray for our whole church right now on this journey over the next seven weeks that you would move us towards these things. You would open our eyes to see how shame is impacting us and maybe we have no clue. You would open our eyes to begin to see that and you would show us how we can and enable us to walk in freedom from shame. So I pray for that. God, I'm excited about these next seven weeks. I pray for our e-groups and the discussions happening there, for the discussions and prayers and friendships and families. All the things are going to be stirred and and all the prayers are going to happen. Lord, we just commit the seven weeks to you and pray that you would move us towards this vision that you've given us, God. So as as we're kind of sitting in that, I want to just give one more invitation here real quickly. But I've talked a lot about the gospel. That's the entry point to this life of a new identity and freedom and purpose. It's entering into a relationship with Jesus. And, And there may be some of you here and you're like, I don't think I have that, but I want to. If you want a relationship with God, I invite you to pray with me. And in this prayer, you're going to just admit your need, And you're going to open your heart to receive Jesus. So just pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I've done my own thing, gone my own way. And my sin separates me from you. But I don't want to be separated from you. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for me to pay for my sin And I choose to place my trust in you, Jesus. Forgive my sin and come live in me through the presence of your Holy Spirit. Change me from the inside out through the power of your love. God, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer, help them grow in the gospel, in this relationship. Help all of us grow in this amazing relationship we have with you. And now we have the opportunity to really celebrate this relationship to enjoy the Lord through worship. So I encourage you, feel free to stand. Why don't we stand initially if you want to sit down at some point, that's totally cool. But let's open our hearts. These songs have been chosen prayerfully to create this environment, to respond to what we've heard this amazing God who loves us so much.